right. Well, as Keith said, we're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians today. This is our, our fifth week in the book, and we are going to be picking up where uh, John Vampatella left off in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Um, to be honest, when we started this series, this was one of the passages that I was most interested in preaching on because in it, Paul says something that I don't hear people talk about very often, even though I have been in churches all my life. Um, I can't ever remember a time where I heard someone talk about this passage. And in it, Paul says something important about the story that we're all a part of. Uh, it's kind of like he, he gives uh, insight into the plot um, that may have been hidden or obscured from us. You know, a lot of the time in stories and movies and in television shows and books and that sort of thing, the full picture of what's going on is not revealed until near the end, right? And in the beginning of the story, it's raising all these questions, and you're wondering, like, what is going on? And why did that guy do that? And, you know, and, and then near the end, some information is given that hopefully puts things in perspective, and then things start to make sense. Uh, one show that I was captivated by, a TV show, about a decade ago, was Lost. Um, maybe some of you liked it, maybe some of you hated it, I, <laughs> I don't know. It ended about 12 years ago and it was a show about a group of people who were in a plane crash and they survived on an island and they quickly realized that this was not an ordinary island. It was a, a very strange island where weird things happened. And that show loved to create mysteries more mysteries than anybody could keep track of, more mysteries than could possibly be answered. But the big picture mystery was always, what is this island, right? And the show, you know, kept its cards close to its vest until like three episodes to the end, where there was finally this explanation, a whole episode that was about what exactly is the island. And, you know, we could debate over whether the answer was satisfying or not, uh, but that's not relevant to the point I'm trying to make, which is um, that in this passage, it's kind of like Paul has a, this is what the island is moment for us. Um, and only what he's talking about is not the island, but it is the church, what the church is all about. Uh, so he gives a key piece of information about the plot, what the story is that we're all a part of. So. Let's look at the passage. Uh, picking up where we left off last week, Ephesians 3, starting in verse 7. Paul writes, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms 
according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. So, the key verse here, the this is what the island is moment, is verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Manifold wisdom means like the rich, deep wisdom. His intent was now that through the church, the rich, deep wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So this is the big picture of the story that Paul wants us to understand. Big plot point being given away. Now this is really interesting to me because I think if you ask the average person, what is the purpose of the church? No one is going to say that. <laughs> or at least nobody I know, right? Maybe people would say something like, well, the purpose of the church is to worship God, or the purpose of the church is to help fulfill the Great Commission. The purpose of the church is to evangelize. The purpose of the church is to make the world a better place, or something like that. And all of those things are true. That's not wrong at all. But none of them are saying exactly what Paul says here. There's a certain angle here that Paul is presenting on what the purpose of the church is that most of us, for whatever reason, have just forgotten about. Or maybe we never knew, right? To reveal God's wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? Well, first, who are these rulers and authorities? Well, just like in, in Lost, when the identity of the island was revealed, it just raised a whole bunch of more questions. And same here. This raises a whole bunch more questions. And there's a lot of questions that we're not necessarily going to get answers to. We don't know a lot about the rulers and authorities, but we do know a few things. So what do we know for sure? Well, a verse that can help us comes a little bit later in this same book, Book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So with that verse in mind, what are some things that we can say about these rulers and authorities? Well, the rulers and authorities are not the same as earthly rulers and authorities, right? It says that they are not flesh and blood, which means that they're not human. We could say they are spiritual beings, right? They reside in other realms, but it's clear that they also influence this physical realm. They influence it significantly. Otherwise, why would they be called rulers and authorities? Right? Clearly, they have a lot of power. And we can also say confidently that their influence is not good. Right? As Paul says that our battle is against them. We're in a, a struggle with them. So these are spiritual beings that have been corrupted in some way. And I realize that... For modern people, talking about this kind of thing can seem kind of weird and out there, uh, but this is the worldview that the Bible is presenting us with, right? So we should take it seriously. There are these spiritual beings that have been corrupted in some way, which means that just like human beings, they have been given a certain amount of power, a certain amount of freedom, and they do not always use it in God-honoring ways, just like we don't always use our power and freedom in God-honoring ways. 
They have their own ideas about what is good and what is wise, and they do what is right in their own eyes. And that has ramifications in our world, in our society, and in our lives. And what Paul is saying is that the church has this special role to play, right? We are supposed to be a sign to these rulers and authorities, you're wrong. God's wisdom is better than your so-called wisdom. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something that is inspiring to me about being given that kind of role. That we're called to prove the forces of evil wrong, right? Called to reveal the wisdom of God to them. One of the commentaries that I looked at this week had a great example of some authorities being proven wrong. Uh, back in 1936, when Hitler was in power in Germany, the Summer Olympics were supposed to be held in Germany. And as most of you probably know, Hitler had this very foolish idea that Aryan people are inherently superior to all other people. And actually, Hitler didn't even want to let black people compete in the Summer Olympics in Germany. But the pressure from the rest of the world was so strong that eventually he relented. And he thought, well, be, this will be a great opportunity to display to the world how superior Aryan people are. Well, that year, uh, Jesse Owens, a black American, put on by far the greatest performance of that Summer Olympics and one of the greatest performances of any Summer Olympics. He won four gold medals uh, in the 100 meters, in the 200 meters, the four times 100 meter relay, and the long jump. So, Jesse Owens four, Hitler zero. And one ESPN writer later, later wrote, Owens single-handedly crushed Hitler's myth of Aryan supremacy. He proved the earthly powers wrong. And we could even argue that by extension he proved the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms wrong because whether the Nazis realized it or not, they were undoubtedly influenced by the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realm with their racist ideology. Right? The, the rulers and authorities love to make us not believe that other people who are different from us also bear the image of God. They love to turn people against each other and, and, and make us hostile towards one another. So wherever you're seeing that, the, the rulers and authorities are at work, right? So they were certainly alive and well uh, in the Nazis. But Jesse Owens showed through his actions that the, quote, wisdom of the Nazis was foolishness. And the church is supposed to take on a Jesse Owens like role in the world, right? We are called to live in a way that proves the spiritual forces of evil wrong. Now, just to make sure that we don't overestimate our importance here, the truth is that Jesus has already proven the spiritual forces of evil wrong. And he did that through the cross. Colossians 2.15 says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. 
the, the word there for public spectacle, it means he humiliated them. Uh, the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in his paraphrase of the Bible, the message, he says, he stripped the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Now, of course, uh, Jesus did not literally march spirits naked through the streets. That is a metaphor. But the reason it's used is because in the Roman Empire at the time, when they had victory over their enemies, that was what they would do to humiliate the people that they, they won. They would, they would parade them naked through the streets. And so what Paul is saying is at the cross, it's like Jesus did that to the rulers and authorities because he exposed their foolishness and he had victory over them. <laughs> it's okay. So Jesus is really the one who has proven these rulers and authorities wrong. But one of the ways that Jesus has chosen to demonstrate his victory over them is through the church. It's through us. He has invited us to joining in with him in this cross-like activity of exposing uh, their foolishness. So that leads to the question, well, what does it look like, practically speaking, for us to prove these spiritual beings wrong? What does it look like to display the manifold wisdom of God to them? Most of the time, it is not going to look like literally competing in the Olympics, thankfully. Right? So, there's a lot of possible answers to that question, but I tried to brainstorm a list this week, and some of the things I came up with were, you know, we prove the powers wrong when we love our enemies. We prove the powers wrong when we refuse to be controlled by money. Rulers and authorities always think they're going to be able to get us to do whatever we want if they just entice us with enough money, right? Uh, we prove the powers wrong when we choose to believe what is true, even when it isn't what we want to hear, even when it conflicts with whatever narrative we've been telling ourselves that makes us feel prideful and knowledgeable, right? We prove the powers wrong when we refuse to live lives that are governed more by fear than by love. We prove the powers wrong when we choose to be people of gratitude rather than people of greed. You know, we prove the powers wrong when we, whenever we truth, choose to believe what is true rather than just what is fashionable at the time. So those are all ways that we prove the powers wrong. And of course, there's many more, right? Because God's wisdom is manifold. It's rich and deep. There's many different aspects to it. And there are, there's all kinds of ways that we can demonstrate and put it on display. But in this passage, Paul really has a specific way in mind that we show the rulers and authorities that they're wrong. Because remember, this is all part of a larger section in the letter where Paul is talking about God removing the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. So remember what he says in verse 8. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. So the mystery that Paul is talking about there is that Gentiles are now welcomed into God's family apart from obeying the law of Moses. Okay, that was something that was not obvious to them. It had been hidden to them. 
that that would be true, right? No circumcision required for the men, no dietary restrictions necessary, no adherence to the system of temple sacrifices and offerings required, right? This is, this is incredible for the Jews, that Gentiles would be let in apart from doing all those things. And Paul says, I have been given the, the grace of making plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. In other words, I've been given the privilege of letting the Gentiles know that they're welcomed in. I've been given the, the privilege of proclaiming the grace of God that comes to us through Jesus Christ. I've been given the privilege of letting people know that God is build, building a family that is not dependent on ancestry or nationality or even on obedience to these religious laws, the Mosaic law, but founded on the mercy of God shown to us through Jesus. So when Paul talks about the church revealing to the rulers and authorities God's wisdom, this is the main way that he has in mind, which is through the church being a unity of those who would not ordinarily be unified. A unity of those who would not ordinarily be unified. Jews and Gentiles sharing the same Holy Spirit, right? Not just people from the nation of Israel, but people from all nations who have come to faith in Jesus. And actually, it makes a lot of sense that that would prove the rulers and authorities wrong. Because when the Jews thought of the rulers and authorities, they thought of them as having jurisdiction over different parts of the world. And they thought of the nation of Israel as the one nation in the world that didn't have some sub-ruler or authority ruling over it, but was directly ruled by God, right? By Yahweh. So, if people from all nations started to come together uniting around faith in the one true God, that would be very confusing for the rulers and the authorities. Right? They'd be like, what is going on? Right? People in my region are identifying with Israel's God. What? I thought they were mine. I've lost control of my territory. Now, like I said, the rulers and authorities like to create hostility between people. Um, hostility between different nationalities, between different ethnicities, different cultures. Why do they like to do that? I don't know. Like I said, sometimes the answers generate more questions. But they are hostile to humanity, so they like to make it so that hum humanity is hostile toward one another. But the church is supposed to be proof to the powers that different nations and cultures and ethnicities actually can come together. Right? They can set aside their hostilities and see one another as brothers and sisters. Because what Christ has done is actually powerful enough to accomplish that. Churches should be places where people who would normally never be around each other are. You know, the natural human tendency is to choose to only be around people who are like us. People who share the same culture, the same hobbies, same sense of humor, 
same political preferences, same grievances, right? That's a common form of fellowship, the fellowship of grievance. We're all annoyed by the same stuff. <laughs> so that's the normal thing. Unite around preference, hobby, grievance, skin color. And I think that the internet has actually exaggerated this tendency for us to find like-minded people and stick with them. Um, you know, when the internet was in its early stages, people predicted, well, this is what's finally going to expose everyone to a wider breadth of perspectives. And of course, to a certain extent, the internet has done that. But the internet has also afforded each one of us the opportunity to lock ourselves into echo chambers that tell us exactly what we want to hear, right? Because surprise, surprise, you can't, nor should you, view the whole internet. So what do you do? Well, you pick the places that are going to tell you exactly what you want to hear, and you find the people who fit in exactly your niche, right? And you stick with those people. Now, in the past, the number of people that you could have relationships with was limited, limited to the people who were in your physical proximity. So, you know, if your neighbors thought differently than you about stuff, you didn't have a ton more options. You just had to learn to get, a, get along with them, and maybe you're exposed to ideas different than your own. But now you can just run to a screen and isolate yourself and just find the people who, you know, think whatever you think. And I think we see the effects of this in our society, right? As people live more and more in these virtual spaces, we're actually becoming more and more polarized as a culture. And I think the rulers and authorities love that. They love it. But local churches should be communities that go against that trend. Right? Churches should be places where we bump elbows with people who are different than us, people who we, we would no, normally never interact with, but because of this common bond that we have of faith in Jesus and the experience of the Holy Spirit, now we're actually hanging out. The rulers and authorities say there is absolutely no way that a bunch of people who have different socioeconomic status and come from different places and different cultures, political leanings, languages, there's no way they're going to be able to come together in the same place and not hate each other. Can't be done. But the church is supposed to be the visible proof you are wrong. God's wisdom is higher than your so-called wisdom. What is impossible with man is impossible through Christ. Now, of course... The sad truth is that the church doesn't always prove the rulers and authorities wrong. Two weeks ago, I brought up some of the ugliest examples in our country's history of that. You know, although many people in the church did fight to end slavery and to end Jim Crow laws, there were other people bearing the name of Christian who actively fought to keep those things, right? And like I said two weeks ago, that is a great example of heresy. Unfortunately, I think that word often gets thrown around way too quickly uh, for, you know, I don't use that word lightly. But when people are unwilling to worship together because of skin color, 
or nationality, that is heresy, right? Because it is, it is going against the, the fundamental nature of the gospel, which is that Jesus died to bring us together. You know, I imagine that when the rulers and authorities see that sort of thing, you know, Christians fighting for Jim Crow laws back in the 60s, I think he, the rulers and authorities say, hey, maybe we were right. And I suspect that the rulers and authorities say that in a lot of other current situations too. Hey, maybe we were right. Maybe we were right after all. They can't tolerate any difference among each other. Maybe we were right after all. They can't even listen to somebody else who has the Holy Spirit if that person doesn't watch the same cable news network. Maybe we were right after all. But the church has not always lived up to its calling. But of course, that's only one side to the story. We have to recognize the whole story. We've got to be honest about the church's failures, but we should also recognize her successes. You know, across the centuries, the gospel message has spread from those first Jewish believers to cultures all over the world. And it's been able to do that because people have been willing to cross cultural barriers to share a message that they believe is, is relevant for people regardless of their ancestry or their nationality. And as the gospel is spread and people have experienced the Holy Spirit, they have expressed their worship in ways that are unique to their culture, right? It's not like every church is exactly the same in its style and music and the way they do things, right? Because the gospel is a core message that can be transferred to multiple cultures and then can have a diversity of expressions, which is a great sign to the rulers and authorities that they are wrong. What Christ has done is powerful enough to create a worldwide unity of diversity. And we see that, despite the church's failures. So the big picture of the church throughout history does prove the rulers and authorities wrong. But we do still keep giving them reasons to say, maybe we were right after all. So let's not do that. <laughs> let's prove them wrong. And I know how we do that is probably a, a topic that could be covered over many months. But I, I just want to end with one word of advice about how we can practically prove them wrong in this way. One, we, one way that we do that is be, by being willing and interested in hearing the perspective of Christians who have a different perspective than us, right? Are we curious at all about learning from Christian brothers and sisters who grew up in different circumstances than us, uh, maybe who have come from poorer conditions than us or are of a, of a different racial background than us? What about uh, Christians who have lived in circumstances of intense persecution, for those of us living, you know, relatively comfortable lives in the United States, those are probably some voices that we should be curious 
to hear from? Are we curious to hear from people with different perspectives who also are believers in Jesus? When we are, and when we really listen, we prove the powers wrong. When I was in seminary, I took a class called Biblical Global Justice. And I remember when I went into that class, I went into it with a pretty limited white American Christian perspective. And that class changed me because in that class we would sit in a big circle and the people in that circle were Christians from lots of different backgrounds. Some of them were immigrants. Some of them were second, third generation. Uh, some of them were descendants of slaves in America. But the one thing we had in common is that we were all committed to following Jesus. We were all in seminary to learn about, you know, the scriptures and how to grow in leadership in the church. And as I listened to my classmates, I watched as some of them recounted their own experiences of discrimination. And these were people that I had sat in other classes with, who I had, you know, eaten lunch with and that sort of thing. But I never knew how much pain they were carrying because they'd talk about these things and they'd start crying or they'd get angry. And I thought, I was just oblivious to how many people around me were carrying this deep well of pain. And so my perspective grew. You know, when you, when you see that kind of pain, you can't deny it. And I realized that I still had a lot to learn. And as we learned from one another in that class, I believe that the rulers and authorities were shaken. That as we heard from one another and we didn't just choose to, you know, buckle down on our old way of seeing the world as we listened and we allowed them to influence our perspective, the, the powers and authorities were shaken and they were proven wrong. So let's be willing to listen, let's be willing to learn, and let's prove them wrong. Amen? All right. Lord, um, what an incredibly high calling you have given us to demonstrate your wisdom to spiritual powers, unseen spiritual powers that obviously have great influence in the world. Um, Lord, I'm, I'm kind of amazed that you would see fit to give us that, that responsibility, but Lord, we know that you fill us with your Holy Spirit and empower us to do that. And Lord, we pray that we would take that calling seriously and that we would have joy, Lord, um, joy like Jesse Owens must have felt at the 1936 Olympics when he stood on that platform, um, knowing uh, that we are demonstrating to these spiritual forces um, that their wisdom is not really wisdom, that your wisdom is higher. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to do that with joy and with confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.